Welcome to the Data Leaders of the North podcast, brought to you by Lawrence Harvey and hosted by me, Kyle Winterbottom. After an overwhelming response to our Data Leaders of the North events, we are delighted to bring you this podcast to allow a wider audience to access the insights that this community shares with each other. Like our events, this podcast has been created for data enthusiasts to listen to some of the most high-profile data leaders across the north of the UK on some of the most trending topics within the industry. We're normally on a round table with a bottle of wine during these chats, so grab a chair and a glass and enjoy this episode. So welcome to the Data Leaders of the North podcast. Um, today I'm joined by Craig Mackay, who is the CEO and co-founder of Shark Tower AI. So Craig, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having us, Carol. Good. Um, so look, really looking forward to getting into um, today's topic, but um, obviously where we always start is just to get a bit of an introduction to you and how you got into this fabulous industry and uh, the, the, the crazy journey that you've been on today. So why don't you just give us a bit of an overview of, of, of your journey so far? Yeah, uh, so 20 years I think I've been doing something to do with uh, data projects change or something. So uh, my, my journey actually was pure accident. I started off in uh, a banking call center uh, when I was 19 very quickly found myself actually doing call center management. I was the curious person that was trying to hack everything, <laughs> learning VBA for Excel. Um, and at the time, it was a, a startup bank, and we were running call predictions on paper. It was like a paper formula thing. Um, so I just went and got self-taught, learned about things called airline uh, models that do queue handling prediction. Um, and all of a sudden, I started running a call center and built models myself. Uh, and, and, and then from that, my career just accidentally fall, you know, fell into doing change and transformation work. But always, you know, my move from there went into lean you know, process efficiency. So I was always gathering data, measuring things, standardizing them, trying different things, testing, you know, learn years being a business analyst and then doing large scale change um, in many, many of the financial services, a little bit of time doing, doing it for... Edinburgh Airport and other industries and, and, and energy as well. Um, but yeah, very much always in the technology and data space and fell into um, becoming a CPU and a CEO for, for a data software company eventually. Nice, nice. Okay. So uh, obviously interesting journey. Um, I always find it fascinating how many people, um, very similar to recruitment actually, when you ask how did you get into the industry, it's like a, a by accident um, by, by <laughs> a accident, lot of the time. Yep, by accident, then, then hacked it all the way. So we yeah. all basically <laughs> hacking our way through this. Um, okay, fair enough. So I guess next question then: Why, why did you take the plunge? What what kind of got you to that point where you know you launched Shark Tower and 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 what's what's your guys' story? Yes. So very very briefly, obviously, Shark Tower is a, a data and AI software company um, headquartered in Edinburgh, uh, and actually. The reason I took the plunge is I originally joined uh, Medano consultancy business at the time, so a data specialist consultancy, whose vision was always to transform how change was delivered, to be more data-driven and to build a autonomous project. And I joined out of frustration because I'd been trying to deliver change for you know, 15 years and hit all the normal barriers. You know, Project management doesn't work. It just doesn't end. It's like frustrating and nobody's aligned and it's 
run by gut instinct and post-it notes. So the idea of Madonna originally is, as Chief Partners offered, to take what the founders had created in terms of Shark Tower, in terms of a data-driven platform for running all their consultant engagements and how they could be more transparent, more data-driven and how change was delivered and you know, turn it into a consumer product, you know, advance the product, develop it. And then, you know, beginning of this year, we span Shark Tower out as a standalone SaaS business so we could obviously drive that further. And then obviously I'll lead it now as CEO. So you're really, you know, how it got here was born out of frustration of seeing continual waste in project management, seeing project management being the least data-driven thing I've ever seen in my life. Yes. Even though we're, <laughs> we were supposed to be implementing big data projects all the time and digital yeah. transformations, and it was based on, you know, pure gut instinct and uh, subjective nonsense. So yeah. Out of frustration, then really, really good uh, you know, few years of really developing, incubating the product, testing it out, and live delivery with, with Madonna's consultancy business. And then you know, have the privilege of being able to spin it out to a standalone SaaS business at the beginning of the year. And now I have to try to lead that into the market, um, obviously disrupt the market and actually you know, grow the business as well as continue our development and R&D in how we solve delivery problems through data visualization, predictive analytics, and, and more so machine learning solutions now. Yeah, okay, interesting. Um, so I guess in terms of data then, obviously your background has been very heavily on the data side, but with a, often a focus around change and transformation, which yeah. um, I, I guess kind of leads very nicely into the topic because when I think about the data hype, as um, I guess it's often referred to. I mean, look, businesses have had data from since they've existed, right? Yeah. Um, it, but it seems like, you know, over the last five to 10 years, there's been an awful lot of emphasis put on how they can use that data to make better informed decisions, you know, for, you know, typically the drivers are obviously increasing revenue, reducing cost, operational efficiencies, all that type of stuff. Um, but with all that in mind, what, why, why do you think that's become the case? Why has data now become such a, a focal point for businesses to make a better informed decision? Yeah, I think you know, there's, a, there's a number of factors. But I think the, the key is we, I think in the last decade particularly, um, th there's, no, there's no sacred cows. So I think, go, go back 20 years, we had large organizations that had grown traditionally and knew their customers and knew their markets places. And actually they didn't really have an imperative to have to use data. They might be really good at using data for strategic intent. So they knew actually I'm 10 points behind my next competitor in the market, or actually I spend more on this bit of supply chain than someone else does. Okay, well, surely I could be better at it then. Mm -hmm. So they're very good at strategic intent, but they didn't really have to be that pivotal as businesses. And um, so, yeah, I used to, I remember when I started off and. In, in delivery, nobody really did business cases. They kind of did notional investment cases, and I think we should do this. But yeah. they had enough market share and enough capital that it was basically shooting fish in a barrel. They just did change for the sake of change because they thought they should kind of iterate stuff. Um, and and obviously there was, there was obviously been a huge advancement in how accessible data is. And you know, we're beyond big data heights, but now you know the proximity to customer data and everything else obviously changes changes the parameters. But I think now we're in a marketplace and in an industry where the consumer uh, is king. No yeah. one has market share. It's so easy to disrupt and innovate. And actually the world, as we see now, is very volatile. So, you know, old models don't work. 
nobody has um, a monopoly anymore. So I think that's probably the key change. It's just the change in the structure. Obviously, technology has played a huge part in that um, and all, which now means that if businesses want to do everything, they have to measure it from day one. Um, if they're not got metrics of why they're doing something and to learn very fast, then they're going to be most behind. Um, and I think we see that. And also, you look at investors, the investor appetites change. And I think uh, KPMG report from last year was that 67% of investors, institutional investors, expect their organizations they're investing in to take pivotal change and innovative change, even if it doesn't you know, have a return in the short term, because they know that's the way to stay ahead of the market. But to do that, they need to be measuring that all the time. So you know, they need to be you know, having metrics in place to know what works, to, to learn fast, etc. So I think now no data can, no organization can get away from it um, in any shape or form. So I think that's def and it's definitely been the case in the last decade, I think the last five years. And I think what has accelerated it, just to finish that point, is that I don't think there's any technology barrier anymore. I don't think people can use legacy systems and old data warehouses and mainframe data they can't get access to. Um, you know, I, I uh, had the you know, sort of insight to work with uh, Splunk, uh, which is a data um, platform, which actually is really good at showing, like, look, I can get machine data out of old PLCs on factory belts, and I can then put that with data from Internet of Things and other stuff, and now I can then put that into Tableau and you can visualize your business and change before you could never do it before. Yep. So there's no excuse, um, and, and the market demands it. Then. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, you, you mentioned a couple of, of points there, which I guess I kind of want to go into a little bit more. You, you know, you kind of mentioned around the whole legacy piece, and I think very rightly said, you know, rewind 20 years, businesses almost grew um, just by doing what they thought they should do. Um, and I guess the, the competitors often weren't doing much different to what they were doing, you know, so there was very little variation in in the change of their stance um, or status within that marketplace. Um, obviously what we've seen, and you mentioned there about the need to pivot, um, that's definitely changed um, over the last kind of five to 10 years. There's obviously a whole host of challenger brands that have popped up across you know, a multitude of different sectors. Um, why do you think that these brands have had so much success sorry, in being able to do some of the things that the bigger corporates struggle to do with you know seemingly what would be a lot less re resources is it is yeah. it more based on the legacy ways of, of working and all of everything that's tied into that or, or is it something bigger yeah i think there's there's probably it's definitely not lack of skills technology data or capital because they have it all right uh, so something's is not happening i think one is complexity so i think uh Challenger brands, startups, scales have have a, a clarity on what's critical to the business. So they know the critical metric, and they're really, really close to the customers and really close to feedback. So, uh, and often people say, "Oh, it, you, corporates should learn to feel fast like startups." That's that's a bit bollock. So nobody wants to feel fast. Right? That's rubbish. <laughs> yeah. What they want to do is learn really fast. Yeah. Right. And and I think that's where startups have an advantage that they're constantly testing things and learning because the feedback cycle. But they're also quite simple, right? They have generally one critical number. And then that critical number might change from acquisition to activation to revenue. But then when they become bigger, they create multiple products, 
maybe multiple yeah. brands, and then it gets complex. And then actually they might start competing against you. So then I think by nature, just as you get larger, you become more complex and it's very hard to know what those critical metrics are. And your mm-hmm. business becomes more diluted. So people in your business find it harder to make decisions or to support change because they don't really know what the critical metrics are. So people then start doing a job because it's their job, but as opposed to it's the most yeah. important thing for the business. So yeah. I think challenger brands, startups, etc. skills are, are, are data driven by default and everybody in the organization knows it and sees it. So, uh, so I think that's one thing. And then of course there's legacy processes. You can be blamed for legacy ways of working and, and you can say that corporates are you know, risk averse, but I think that's more to do with scale. It's just harder to make decisions and there, there's more complexity in it and there's more regulation comes in, etc. So I'm not sure that's really an answer. One of the things I actually think is interesting is, and certainly some of the businesses we've been working with recently, um, even traditional businesses like the, you know, I'm talking manufacturing businesses or you know, you know um, plumbing businesses and stuff that have just got to big scale. Yeah, I actually think it's amazing the amount of change they do and how much they pivot. And actually, I was speaking to one recently that managed to take their whole business remote from a, a really traditional business has been going 15 years that you would think have no idea how to go digital. And they've took the call sent everybody remote in a week and a half because of you know obviously the current the situation and they've got not a single project manager and they have no project management methodologies or frameworks or change management so i actually think what i think why they're challenger brands and, and actually a lot of businesses they are just the constant change so the whole business is a project and they're used to constant change whereas again more traditional incumbents as we talked about, they had steady state for a long time. It was just steady growth, keep doing the thing that we want to do. And we always knew that. Whereas organizations that have come around in the last 15 to 20 years are just one big project. And I don't think there's any difference. To, so I actually think you know, that what they have over corporates is no project management, which is ironic since it's self-project management software. But yeah. um, I think that's a key thing that uh, they're just change organizations by default. Yeah. No, that's... That's interesting. I mean, obviously, there's so many buzzwords out there nowadays, but obviously you hear about, you know, data innovation and experimentation being often at the forefront of a lot of these, you know, well-publicized data-driven type businesses, you know, that, that they're kind of the lingo that's, that's often used. Um, I guess if you think about some of the biggest companies, um, you know, they've all gone through some kind of digital transformation and, and change program as time has progressed, you know, with um, whatever the case may be. But um, what, what what do you think that it's, it takes for one of them to break out of, of that mold where the change and the scale of the change is still quite limited? You know, because yeah. if I think about, for example, with, you know, I don't know, a challenger brand like, I don't know, Monzo or Starling, you know, burst onto the scene, we're going to do everything completely digitally, um, offer you all these little cool, funky concepts and, you know, um, cool looking cars that make you look important and, and all that type of stuff. Um, there's nothing theoretically stopping from one of the major banks doing that, but yet they don't. So is is that is that back to the complexity issue again of, well, how do we revert from what, what we've always been known as, or is it a, a more of a point of they don't want to be in that marketplace? No, I, th- I think it's, I, th- I think it's a different approach to change, right? I think and it is, it's a culture change and it has become a more data, it's a customer centric. And I worked for a long time on customer centric change and voice of the customer. And it, it wasn't true. It's, 
it was high level measurement to justify a change to time fit and process. And again, it was you pushing what you thought was the right solution to customers. I, I think, and that's what's always just going to happen. I think now it's more consumer So I think if you look at the example of Monzo Starling Bank, um, you know, look at the CEO of Starling Bank, uh, Anne Bowden, she's excellent. She's on Twitter all weekend telling people the metrics in terms of their response for the business crisis loans and why they're, where they're performing well, where they're feeling, where she wants to do better. So she is speaking to her customers directly with metrics and numbers, and she's not hiding it. So the business is transparent. Monzo was transparent from day one, showed you all the, all the workings of the business, showed you all the roadmap. And Monzo had nothing, really. Like when Monzo first launched, that was a customer open. It was Mondo before it changed its name to Monzo. Huge yeah. rebrand that was. Um, but what they had was a clear vision that they made sure that the customers aligned to their vision. And then they iterated constantly with the customers. And they, they, they showed them what they're talking about roadmap. They allowed people to upvote things. They were purely consumer-led. So I, to me, I go back to that proximity of customer feedback. Um, the, I think to, to break free from your own workings, you, I think, and the ones that we've seen do it well, and I, I've seen a lot of change recently, you know, in the last few years, the customers that really understand the customer journey, the moments of the light, using feedback constantly to then drive where they take the business and where they invest in innovation product. But I think you'll see that, and in, in you used the two prime examples, Monzo and Sterling Bank are purely done by referral. Everybody loves them and promotes them. And that's because you know, customers demand more from the customers, the companies, they want them to listen to them. The the products are the same. It's the experience, yep. but it's also the all evolving experience. So for retention and brand loyalty, you know, it's not just create a good product. Um, it's experience around it, and that the businesses and enterprise businesses should have the ability to do this most because they've got more products than most people. They've got more resources to that, so they should be able to adapt their services and products. So there's not one bo box fits all, um, and they should be able to adapt that quickly and continually for the customers. So I think that's probably just again unlocking some internal barriers some legacy way of thinking, but again, it's truly utilizing data. It's using that real-time access to customer monitoring, feedback cycles, sentiment analysis, understanding customer touch points, and using that to drive uh, any of your innovation, your product development in, in your services. Mm. Yeah, yeah, interesting, okay. And I guess, you know, think, think about change and businesses now that are using data to, to drive that change in terms of the direction that they're going in. Um, obviously, I had a number of people on the podcasts where this kind of, I guess, this question comes to the forefront, but around um, buy-in from the yeah. stakeholders. Um, I think my experience is that a lot of businesses know that data is important to the organisation. Um, how important they feel it is maybe to their day-to-day -day role is something completely different. But um, I guess to angle the questions here, you know, what, what um, how important is that buy-in from from the stakeholders and then kind of that filtering through to, to get the result that they're after when they're trying to, to change? Yeah, it's critical. I think it's critical from all aspects of the thing. So I think I always talk about um, shared accountability. So I think in, in most organizations, whether it's in delivery of projects or delivery of service, I think everybody becomes a bit protectionist because they always get hit over the head of a stick. And data used to be used. So NI, business NI, 
used to be used to hit people over the head with the stick to say you're not performing well enough, you're not selling enough, you're not delivering fast enough. Um, so people then become a bit protectionist. So there's a there's a barrier I think in most uh, large corporates where actually data was used negatively and not for good behavioural change. So I think there is definitely a buy-in and a culture change from everybody to have that sort of well we need data to be transparent. To do that you need buy-in. So people need to get to trust it. They need to know it's going to be used in the best endeavors, right? And so it's going to be useful, but like that means all being aligned on the outcomes, which means you need to have aligned incentives. So if your incentive yeah. is to, to comply with governance, um, you're going to do that. But if, if your incentive was to make sure the business has the best results possible, then you're going to work around governance, so you're going to stop projects. So you know, quite often in my world, in project delivery, people are incentivize just to deliver by any means possible and deliver the thing regardless if it's still going to have the benefit outcome because that's how they get the bonus and that's how they get to go on holiday so of course they're going to do it they'll never stop projects unless someone forces them to yeah and so that's misaligned so i think buy-in is huge i think uh and you wonder what we, we obviously when we worked under madonna one of the things that madonna spends a lot of time doing in any of his data work is data culture and behavioral change um, and i think it can seem like a huge thing because it sounds like a transformation and a culture thing, but actually I think a lot of it starts with what new skills need to bring into the business when you talk about data. So data needs to, someone needs to you know, curate that data. Obviously we want good data standards, data quality, we need to trust the data, it needs to be timely, all that good engineering practices to huge discipline, but I also need someone to facilitate it, curate it. You need data storytelling. So if you can't relate the data to the, to the business and the customer stories, then obviously stakeholders won't buy into it. So yep. again, how do you visualize it, articulate it in a way that they get it and it's timely and accurate in real time? They go, right, excellent. I can now understand my business. It's represented me in the way I envisage it. I can understand my customers. So I think that buy-in part is, is huge. And I think actually that's the bit where, certainly for data practitioners, that's one of the things we talked a lot about with data scientists and other stuff is how do you sell your art? How do you sell your expertise and stuff because you're going to have to be a storyteller as well yeah um, and one thing we're trying to get people to to transform and be more data driven obviously not everybody's going to be a data engineer or a data scientist but those creative people in an organization who used to be comms people well they need to become data storytellers and data visualization for example yeah um, so i think that's a key thing to the buy-in question yeah yeah i guess an interesting point that you just made around incentivizing the people that work in the business when you're talking about trying to become more data driven and you know to impact change i guess one thing that i was just thinking about whilst you were you were speaking then was how, how do businesses get to that point where they're trying to deliver on a project which might not necessarily be benefiting the business in the long run anyway yeah what, what so, do you see from your experience with that uh well yeah i've got this is this is this was the pain of my life so i used to <laughs> I used to do delivery assurance. Um, right. what, what, what large businesses are very good at is strategic intent. So they can write a great strategy paper, as I think you mentioned at the beginning. So what used to happen and still happens too often is a strategy will be written that over the next five years, our business needs to do this. Yep. And here's a strategy written by McKinsey or Bain that says, right, and it'll have those data points to prove this particular strategy. And then someone will define lots of change around that. You know, your process efficiencies, new operating models, new solutions, and then everybody will start just delivering projects. Nobody, there's two, two things that failed in, nobody continually measures, was that strategic case still correct? Um, yeah. 
So that's not continually measured and monitored. And then when we start delivery, we don't really measure are we delivering the thing right. So two things feel, are we delivering the thing right and do we need to adjust? Because generally projects start in a, this is waterfall, this is agile, these are the stage gates, this is the time you've got, just go and do. Yeah. Uh, and then when they hit problems, they just keep going regardless. Um, so are you delivering the thing right? And is the thing you're delivering still right? So is it in terms of outcome? And I give a, a really simple uh, story on this, and I won't mention names, but I, I was working on um, a lean transformation of, of a private bank in, in the UK. And it was you know, tens of millions of pounds of investment in the change, loads and loads of concurrent projects. And I came in to do a bit of assurance because it was going a bit off track. And the first thing I tried to do is work out where are the benefits and who in the business is going to claim the benefits and receive and implement the change that all these projects are working on. And business owners are not admitted to some others, but there's one project that was transforming the mortgage sales process for private banking. And it was building a whole new front end system. Uh, and it was going to implement in three months and it's actually on track. But since this, the whole business case and strategy and you know, something done, a new project came along that was going to stop selling uh, private banking mortgages because they realized they were no longer profitable. And that was going to, they were going to take off the market six months later. So, <laughs> so when I announced that to the program director, I was actually told to keep it to myself because this project was green. They've hit every milestone. They've had no change requests. Their team get incentivized for doing that. That's how they get their bonus. And they'd have to send half the team home because they're contractors. So their whole mindset was keep delivering for three months, spend that money, and implement it for it just to be switched off six months later, which is incredible, but not really their fault. So I think that's a good example of one. Nobody was measuring, is it still the right thing to do? And you know, and then they're just delivering for delivery's sake. So it's it's yeah, it's tough that one. Yeah, no, that's. I mean that's really interesting. I'm 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 kind of sensing, um, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I guess with all of the complexity that you get in big enterprises, um, in comparison to you know lean startups and scale ups, it seems to me like what you get often in in the startup businesses, is like you said, there's a very clear goal, there's one clear metric that everyone's pulling towards and everyone's moving in the same direction, because the big enterprises have so much going on, you know, different brands, different products, different services, et cetera, et cetera. It almost seems like in certain instances, there's probably some politics that play a part in how effective that change is and how quickly and uh, to what scale that change can happen. Is, is that is that fair? I think it is fair. And I, and I don't think it's anybody's fault. To yeah. be honest, I think it's just something that happened because I think nobody I've ever met wants to be doing the wrong thing and nobody really wants to be working on something that's not going to be used. So everybody wants to know they're working on the most important thing. And I think if people had transparency of what's the most important thing for the business, okay, I'm happy to switch because nobody can tell me that. Well, of course I'm going to be resistant. I'm not going to stop my project because that's all I know. So you can understand what I And I actually think it's just, it's a little bit of getting back to the large businesses that we know of the past were set up for stability and for that growth part. Right? So it was all about protect the business and grow slowly, whereas the world now requires pivotal change. The business is itself that. So it's not really politics. Everybody likes to think it's politics, but it's actually just layers of protection that we put into businesses over time yeah. that has caused that separation. 
I think it can be broken by being more transparent. I mean, everybody engaged in the data of, of the business and the customers, but um, I think it's just a, an, you know, an unfortunate consequence of the way that businesses try to protect themselves as, as, as they, they grew in any way that businesses used to run. Yeah, no, that's um, that's interesting. I think what I was my, my my literal next question was going to be: it, Could it also be a case of you know because these startups uh, and and high growth businesses, you know, they're, they're they're pulling in one direction towards one metric, and that's communicated probably quite well and probably much more easy to communicate in what they're hoping to achieve as opposed to you know a, a bank that employs 10,000 people you know who often if you're part of a project team it's right this is what we're doing the drivers behind why they probably aren't privy to and have never know is, yeah. is there a yeah that, a that's, that. absolutely, that's absolutely clear and I think I think uh, there is and that's one of the key challenges I think absolutely clear. that's where the advantage of a, an organization everybody's on one metric and when we have to change when I have to tell my business if we've changed their strategy I can give clear rationale and I can give another number and the whole yep. business works out, and everybody in the business knows they're part of it still. And mm -hmm. um, nobody gets left behind in that. But as you say, in a, in a large organization of tens and hundreds of thousands, that's pretty, pretty hard. So, and it requires a lot of, again, trust and transparency and actually data literacy. And I think that's one of the biggest things organizations need to gain. And I think, gain when they, I think, if they want to change the course of business and actually have everybody pivot faster. They're never going to be as fast, of course, because they're big. But if they want to be able to, people to pivot and people to help create innovation and product and be customer-centric across the whole business, then that transparency um, of data, but that requires data literacy in the business, which is quite a new concept, I think, we need yeah. to train. And we've seen um, in other businesses where they're not yet data literate from the top to the bottom and upwards. So we're trying to throw data solutions at data scientists at it, and that just creates another problem because people are spewing out analytics insights and models that nobody understands and then jump and make decisions on a, a model that isn't wrong, it's just not 100% robust, but it's good insight and indicated, but it's not yet a thing you would make a decision on, but they don't know that. So I think data literacy is going to be a key um, skill that these organizations need to, need to learn. Yeah, no, that's interesting. There's um... Uh, this week's episode that will be out is a big talk around creating a data culture and obviously that whole data literacy piece comes in into that and um, yeah one that will be re released in a, a week or two time is the topic around data literacy and how to try and spread that so um, it's interesting because all these things just tie together it's almost like you can't really have one without the other which is uh, is good I guess for, for this podcast so yeah. okay I guess in terms of the ability to change and one of the terms that I really liked when we first spoke that you used was around enterprise agility and the, these these organizations ability to be able to, to change at some kind of pace to try and keep up or, or stay ahead whatever the case may be um, some of the feedback I often get you know and I'm typically speaking to heads of directors of all the c-suite about what they're doing with data and what the challenges are etc etc um, some of the feedback I often get is very much around we we were doing stuff or the business is doing stuff but it's more because they feel obliged to do it or because it's the sexy thing to do versus actually what's going to get us the best results um, is, is that kind of a common trap in the whole change and transformation piece around data well yeah I think it's it's certainly has been and it's been well in 
big data, data transformation, digital transformation again, I think, and also I think you see it now and here we should all have loads of data scientists and uh, and nobody thinks about how do we help those data scientists by you know, giving them good data yeah. and engineering capabilities and also giving them good output and data storytelling. So I think, yes, obviously you've got to be careful that data isn't the sexy thing. Um, I think it's definitely the competitive advantage though, so it's not, I don't think it, it certainly can't be vanity uh, and it can't be the sexy thing to, to be seen to do it. It's just how you do it well. Yeah. Um, so I think I think it's good to starting. I think it just needs a little bit of, um, again, it goes back to that data literacy bit, but know what value you can get now. So what's the most important to get results? So throwing a data scientist at a problem that is still just an analytics problem, you know, it's probably a mistake that happens too often. Uh, and what I can do is frustrate data scientists. I think data scientists coming to the market also realize, look, you're not necessarily going to go and do the, the in-depth you know, research and development you did in academia, and you might need to apply research because remember, most organizations are not going to need that yet. Yeah. Um, but there's definitely you know, appliance and machine learning that we can start to you know, get, get insights and you know, sentiment and other stuff you know, for customers yeah. and everything else. There's, so there's pockets there. So I think, yeah, I think when it comes to data, they have to look at where can we get tangible results now that will get people on the journey. And I think yeah. we've got to be careful that we don't jump too far to long yeah. tail research uh, and hypo you know, really in-depth hypotheses and stuff that we're trying to solve the problems. Likewise, don't throw data scientists at a data analytics problem. Um, and I, think, I think that's a challenge for everybody. I've definitely seen that. You saw the inflation maybe. It's not so bad now a couple of years ago where data scientists were coming straight out of academia, maybe going to start up and getting pulled into 100k jobs in you know, big corporates uh, with no experience, no grounding, and, and, and they were floundering because the organization wasn't set up for them and the problems they were getting asked to solve weren't right. So I think to get the best results, you've got to be clear on what problem you're trying to solve. Have a question you're trying to solve, first of all, and then have a way of understanding what does that need? Yeah. Is it analytics? Is it insights visualization? Is it just information, first of all? Then is it what else can I do yeah. in terms of step change of applying data science further? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, we're, we're kind of, I guess, flowing back into the realms of, of data literacy. And I don't know whether that's part of the issue at the top around some of these boardroom tables. But, um, you know, some of the conversations, for example, I always hear is, you know, you'll have, again, used banking just because we mentioned Monzo and Stalin before. But, you know, some of the big corporate banks are looking at what they're doing. And it's like, right, well, all right, these guys are using AI, right? We need we need to do AI. And there's there's no parameter around what what that means. There's no. It's almost just like that's what they're doing. We should do that. That's going to solve. That's going to bridge the gap. And um, yeah. as you rightly say, it's often in businesses of that size, much more simplistic things they can probably do that resemble change that will give them far more tangible results, um, which yeah. I, I always find really interesting. Okay, so obviously you guys work in that kind of data and AI software space. What are the kind of key things and, and I guess conversations that you're having with organizations then when it comes to, to change? What, what is there a general consensus around the appetite? Yes, and I think actually, even in the last couple of months, we've seen actually organizations that wouldn't have necessarily had that appetite or thought they needed to change, both from a sort of digital and a data tooling point of view, are definitely seeing that now. Um, no. So there's definitely an appetite for change. I think, and there has, I think, I think we are mature enough. I think data 
practices and data science, as I say, and I think we've removed any excuse not to do it from the technology we've got now, and I don't think we can use legacy infrastructure stuff as excuse. I think as a whole, absolutely, I think everybody's ripe and appetite for it. Obviously, how people apply it. I think uh, one of the things I think is still the barrier, though, I think there's there's a lot of people that are scared to start. I think it's it's interesting. I think, again, it's the, it's the lack of control and certainty. So I think people need to change their expectations of what they're going to get from data, especially you know, when we start moving closer into data science and, and machine learning or AI. So the expectation that you're going to get certainty is ridiculous because we're starting from a place of low maturity, low data quality, probably scarce data. Um, what we can start to do is get insights and indicators of where to look to reduce uncertainty and increase probability, especially, you know, we've got to accept, I think when we speak to organizations is that, that you can't control the thing and you can't even claim to be certain about it because, you know, you're getting disrupted so much and hopefully you're being innovative. So by default, it's the first time you've done it. So it should be ambiguous, right? Yeah. But even more so now, we see that there's no one can tell us how the world is going to operate in six months. They can't use the old models to do it. So I think I think businesses have to set their expectations going, okay, I'm not getting certainty at this. What I'm going to do is get reduced uncertainty that increases probability. If they can change that mindset, then they can start now and say, well, I know this data is not 100% robust, but I've done my best to clean it up. I've done my best to understand. I know its feelings, and I can actually apply some data science to it, and I can find insights I didn't know before, or I can apply some analytics and visualization to it. And if I share it, I'll start a conversation around it. And again, as long as we accept it's not 100% robust, it will lead you to one, pull more data into every conversation decision you make. Two, we'll, we'll find new insights. I'll tell you where to go look where you yourself you discover and observe stuff. So I think that's probably the biggest thing. I think there is a, a still a barrier, and there's a lot of people will um, maybe promote this because it sells, sells certain services that uh, you don't need to go through, through huge transformations with huge data quality and data engineering work to get started. You need all that, but let's get started now. Share for the insights we've got, accept them that robust, but use them as indicators for to look and use them as ways to drive cultural change that pulls data into conversations, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So almost taking smaller pieces of work and almost proving that they work and they're adding value and you can use it, which will lead you on that journey somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, treat, yeah, treat it like a prototype, like prototype. Start yeah. now, iterate and iterate. Um, but yeah, I think, and I think that's the hard thing for, uh, especially a lot of data practitioners and stuff. And I'm sure you see it when you're hiring people in and all the what they ask that you get is the expectation of them is ridiculous um, sometimes. So again, expect that these people are not going to come in and, and be the silver bullet to your organization and give you robust answers. Except the world is bloody messy. <laughs> yeah. and all you have yeah. to do is reduce that uncertainty a little bit for you yeah absolutely do you, do you see obviously for you ai is in your business name um yeah do you do you see and feel and hear from the conversations you're having with you know the the businesses that you partner with that that's very much on the agenda um or, or are these businesses you know are they coming to you with look, we've got a specific problem that we want you to help fix, or is it more a case of help? <laughs> uh, can you yeah. tell us what our problem is? I think it's, I think it's help. I think AI is in the name, uh, and obviously what AI means um, is, is, is the thing. And it, it, so, you know, we put it in the name, and then we sort of unpick it a bit for us. And everybody we talk to, and like, we always talk ourselves, we're not a project management solution. We're solving 
business problems. It makes sense help businesses make decisions and have greater chance of outcomes. Um, so actually, I would be asking. I just want to be. I, just, I want to be faster from more robust insights to making decisions. At the moment, I feel like I can't make decisions. It takes too long for information to come to me. I don't have any insight. What's really going on in my business? And then by the time I do get presented information, everybody tells me it's two weeks out of date. Um, and I always do the maturity test is how many times you sit in a decision meeting, whether it's a project decision meeting, assurance meeting, or a business meeting. And no one says I believe because the data tells me so. It's like, I think, I know, but let me go check because this report's two weeks out of date. So I think most people just go, I just, I need to be pivotal, but I can't make decisions. I just, I don't want to, I, I don't want to make, 100% decisions, I know we can't do that, but I just want to make more robust decisions faster. Yep. And I think that's that, that's one of the key things. So again, that's a data, that's a simple data problem, it's not a simple data problem, but it starts with um, timeliness of data, robustness of data, action, yep. actionability of data. And that's what people want, right? And then can you automate that? So I think that's where then the AI question comes in. So what is AI? So is it artificial intelligence? Well, in most domains, it's no artificial intelligence we're miles away from that um, and certainly it's not something that we, we do I think there's two ways I like I think are more useful phrases one is automated intelligence so how can you help be faster from insights to decision making so that is automation that can improve the data flow and whether that's RPA or anything else that can improve the data flow get insights quicker and can also do modeling for you to say well here are the options um, because that's often the hardest part of the decision, you know, how to model the options with it, take this course of that. Um, and I want to like to talk about when we're doing it for change delivery is, again, we're not providing artificial we're just trying to give up augmented intelligence. So the stuff that you talked about, that's when you mentioned, is it because organizations are more complex and have more layers and have more brands? It is because when they were smaller, I knew, every, I know everything that goes on in my business. Mm -hmm. I know all the dependencies, I know it, I know who needs a cup of coffee. I know he needs to kick up the arse. So <laughs> all we're trying to do with, with Shakhtar is actually do that at scale. So how do we get the intimacy and intelligence you have when you're a small business at scale? And that's the same for when you're doing change delivery. So we're just trying to augment intelligence that we have as humans when we're close and it's not so complex. Um, so I think, yeah, I think most businesses just want us to be faster from decision, uh, from insights to decision and have more trust in the data they do it so it's more robust and ultimately we can help that through automated intelligence and augmented intelligence that, you know, that support the businesses in decision making nice nice interesting craig well look it's been hugely informative i guess before we finish up um is there any kind of final words or or, or bits of advice that you've got for any organization that might be at the start of that journey you know that feels that they should be looking to try and change somehow at scale in terms of you know key considerations in terms of what what should they look at first to, to decide which route to take yeah i think the i think they should prototype having a data culture and i think that prototype means you know you know create data innovation labs create little silos away from the rest of the business that aren't constrained by the day-to-day -day running the business and else and and look what you can do with you know with a few data engineers, a data scientist doing some stuff, but really also some good data storytellers and data visualizers, and present what you find and start a conversation. I think that's the key because I think that's where you'll start to have a more transparent, open conversation in the business, change the culture. Um, and I think you do that now before investing on 
all the work you need to do to increase your data quality and data engineering and, and, and long-term research because you won't be ready for it even if you could do it so i think to me it's, it's, it's about prototyping small scale but be really transparent about sharing that and start a conversation about it um don't wait you know i used to get kicked over the head when i started off as a you know, when i was a business analyst and stuff i used to get kicked all the time for spending weeks to make sure the answer was 100 percent robust when actually if it was 80 percent robust it would have been fine if we could have made a faster decision and you know that's time money so i think prototype yes team experiment being a data culture um, is the key place to start nice well craig look it's been an absolute pleasure thank you very much for uh, coming on and uh, all right cheers craig speak soon bye cheers, mate. bye That's it for this episode of Data Leaders of the North, the podcast. I hope you've enjoyed listening as much as I've enjoyed recording it. I'll be back next week speaking to another data leader from the North. Until then, make sure you follow Lawrence Harvey on social media to be the first to hear about the next episodes. And please share, like, comment and rate these podcasts so that more people in our industry get to hear them and benefit from them too. If you'd like to ask questions or pose topics for future podcasts, do get in touch with me. My details are in the podcast bio. Thanks for listening.